Hello and welcome back to this week's Influence Marketing Talks brought to you by Cure Media, one of the leading influence marketing agencies for high street fashion, home and beauty brands. I'm Holly Morin. And I'm Frida Ekholm. And as usual, we're going to be sharing with you all of the important trends and tactics in consumer marketing in the digital age. And we're going to try to do it in right around 15 minutes. So, Holly, what are we talking about today? Today... We are going to be doing a bit of a history lesson. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. You came here, didn't know what we're talking about. <laughs> you had to really dig deep for that. That's like no student has ever said that. Um, I, I don't know. Like, did you like history at school? Actually, yeah, yeah, I did. I had a really did good you? teacher, so um, it switched when I like came up in the upper grades. Uh, yeah. So yeah, like I it. got worse. See, I loved history, and then they were like, "Oh, now you have to start writing essays," and I was not into that all of a sudden. I love writing. I love when you could just sit down, quiet, and just write the history. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully today won't be as boring as I found um, some of my history lessons at school, because today um, the actual topic we're going to be looking back at the history of micro influencers. I obviously don't find that boring and I'm going to assume that anyone listening to Influence Marketing Talks won't find that boring either. (laughs) But just in case you're not sold, maybe you're a brand or an agency that prioritizes mega creators or celebrity accounts, I think it's important to flag straight off the bat that micro-influencers are big news. They really are, whether you like it or not, I'm afraid. Exactly. So in fact, in 2021, micro-influencers accounted for 91% of the channel. That's crazy. And and it means that if you are only focusing on those bigger accounts, you know, the celebs, the megas, that 9% or less, even once we, you know, factor out nano accounts too, then that's a huge part of the landscape you're going to be missing out on. And a lot of potential as well, mm-hmm. because... We see time and time again that these are often by far the most effective like ambassadors, brand ambassadors for your brand. Yeah, so true. And if you've been around long enough, then you'll definitely have heard us kind of waxing lyrical about the power of the micro-influencer before. But if you haven't, do head to our website. There is a whole bunch of content on the matter. But today is less about the why and, and more about kind of the how and I guess the when. Yes. And it's an interesting one because while we know influence marketing has always been a thing in one capacity or another, it's often easier to look back through the history of celebrity and mega influencers because in a historical context, that means we're talking about kings and queens, big society names and the names on the tin celebrities. Mm-hmm. And naturally, they are the people that the record books make space for. Yeah, no one cares about the peasants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have had to do a bit of, of digging to track the emergence and kind of the evolution of the micro-influencer. But the first big date that flagged for us was actually as far back as 1765. So way That's back in the old days. So Long far back. <laughs> <laughs> so to set the scene, Josiah Wedgwood, he is an English potter. Very glamorous, I know. And he's got some next, like, kind of next level glazing techniques. People are going nuts for his work. 
and those people eventually come to include Queen Charlotte. Exactly. So Charlotte gets hold of one of his collections and convinces him to effectively allow her to brand it, calling it Queenswear. And this, not surprisingly, does wonders for Josiah. Yeah, it really does. As you said, not surprisingly. (laughs) But suddenly he's getting orders from all over the globe. Everyone wants a bit of the original collection, but also many of his other works. So basically what we would now term spillover effect. Now, this is arguably in an era where influence did still rely largely on fame. And so the Queen is, if you want, the original celebrity influencer in this kind of chain of events. But from there, Josiah sort of becomes an influencer in his own right. And other potters are rushing to to imitate his, his designs and his techniques. Yeah, and it's interesting to see the start of the strategy evolving around this, because Wedgwood was savvy and replicated his success with Queen Queenswear with other well-known patrons for future collections. Yeah, loads of them actually. I can't remember any names right now, but they <laughs> look at the look it up. There are loads of um kind of named collections. Now like we said, from here we do stay in celebrity land for a while because while we assume micro influencers still existed in their communities, pre-internet, who's keeping track of that? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can fairly confidentially say that there was going to be the coolest guy or girl in any town or village that people wanted to emulate but we haven't got records of course (laughs) so the next date we jump to on our timeline it's late 19th century around 1875 and this is when the celebrity trading card emerges So people flock to purchase the product that contained them because they want the full collection. Right, Holly? (laughs) You have the (laughs) Pokemon style. (laughs) For the Gen Z and millennials. No, not Gen Z. You're too young. (laughs) (laughs) You also remember. And this really highlights to brands the power of influence, the effect they can achieve through a celebrity endorsement. And as a new channel emerge, that can broadcast these messages to a wider audience. The celebrity influencer really comes into their own. Sure, from, from print to radio to eventually television, and that's black and white to full spec color, the celebrity endorsement becomes virtually a guarantee of sales for a brand. And consumers cannot get enough of it in these years. They haven't become cynical yet. (laughs) They have not. And so celebrities really come to dominate the advertising world or, you know, as we would probably call it, the influence marketing space for a good while. But in 1983, everything changes. Oh, the suspense. (laughs) Suspense indeed. What mystery. Uh, it's, It's not a mystery. I'm sure most of you will know this because this moment in time really will separate modern advertising from the past or or even modern life from the past. Can I take a guess? Go for it. Is it the internet? <laughs> it is the internet. No secrets here. <laughs> I assume most people work that out. I didn't do a great job of keeping it hush. Yes, the internet arrives as we approach the turn of a new millennium and the field is suddenly thrown wide open. People can connect like they never have before. They can do it in real time and they can do it from literally anywhere in the world or virtually anywhere in the world. Peer-to-peer communication really takes off at this point. You're no longer limited to the people you actually know. You can source advice or recommendations from many millions of people all around the globe. And crucially, suddenly anyone who wants a podium can have one. 
Which brings us to our next big date, which is 1994. What happened in 1994? Aside from I yeah. turned three. <laughs> we have some excitement music, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Drum roll. The arrival of the personal blog. Dun, dun, dun. So Justin Hall, a journalist and the man described as the father of the personal blog, launches Justin's links from the underground, a diary site that offers personal anecdotes and guidelines for navigating in the online world. So over time, the blog's content shifts, digging deeper into the intimate details of his personal life, and people can't get enough of it. No, we're all creepy voyeurs at heart. <laughs> we were then, we still are. Because as many as 25,000 people were reading his posts every single day. And he actually, he kept that blog up for, I think it was 11 years. We found the first oversharer. We have, <laughs> yay. It happened back then too. And this is a trait that's only going to become more celebrated in the internet age to the point that we see it today. And also more accessible because following the success of Justin's blog, which he largely had to hand code, we then see the arrival of sites like Blogger and Live Journal in 1999, which make it infinitely easier for literally anyone, just your average citizen, to build and grow their own platforms and audiences. Yeah, and Google talks the potential here. Surprise, mm -hmm. again. <laughs> and by 2003, they snapped up Blogger and they've also launched AdSense, a platform that gives people a convenient way to monetize their web traffic. So if you run a popular blog, now you can start getting paid for it. Yeah. Which is next step. Yeah. And that same year, we get actually a really nostalgic moment in history for me and I don't know if you'll remember it which is going to make me feel ancient <laughs> what is it MySpace do you remember MySpace oh uh, I remember I was too young no, no. <laughs> so in case any of our listeners don't remember it like Frida or remember it in theory but not practice MySpace was really um the first social media network to grab the world's attention obviously there had been predecessors but none that have seen the kind of popularity or the mass uptake that came with MySpace. And even though I wasn't there myself, <laughs> this platform that works fast, cultural icons are created overnight and their dev devotees are avid followers of what they're wearing, who they're listening to and where they're shopping. So much. I remember them all yeah. <laughs> to this day. <laughs> I don't remember, but I know. I know the story. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, the power of this platform combined with blogs and more importantly, the people building their networks across both becomes very quickly apparent. And in 2004, so just one year after MySpace actually launched, a man called Ted Murphy introduces the Blogstar Network, a platform that offered brands access to email lists of what we would now term influencers, people who had followings and who would be willing to endorse a brand's products or services. And now it's important to note that through all of this, the celebrity endorsement is still the traditional like way of using these people. So if you want your product promoted, then you want to get Britney Spears on board. <laughs> to be fair, I'd probably still be tempted to buy something if Britney told me to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would. Do. I had I had the perf the perfume fantasy. Yes, yes. I loved it. <laughs> I actually found one, a really old one, in some of like the old 
uh, childhood boxes. No way. It didn't smell as good as it did then, no. but you know, the smell <laughs> it really takes you back in time. We're having a, a Britney Stan moment. We've gone off track, but she's free now. I want to make sure Gal gets, pe- gets paid. You know, I've got to, I've got to keep keep her in monies. Um, but you are right. We are we're still predominantly up until this point in the celebrity age of influence marketing. But micro-influencers are really emerging. They're finding their feet. I think it's just that brands didn't necessarily know how to maximize them at that point. Yeah, and I think one of the big things that changes that from this point and forward is that over the course of the next five or six years, we are inundated with the arrival of new social media platforms. So we get YouTube 2005, Facebook a year later, Twitter that same year, and by 2010, what will soon become the influencer headquarters, Instagram. Oh, what a year. And worth mentioning, actually, that in 2010, we also have the launch of YouTube's partner program, making them the first social media platform to begin investing directly into content creators. And also worth mentioning, because this opens up for a new era for the monetization of social media accounts. Mm -hmm. So suddenly YouTube stars are on catwalks and at award shows, and most aren't as high profile as the, for want of a better word, actual (laughs) celebs. But this is partly what gives them their power. For sure. And by the mid-2010s, we're already starting to see a cultural shift away from the cult of celebrity and with it a real decline in engagement with their endorsements and their recommendations. Yeah, because like we say every time, how can I really trust a recommendation from a celebrity when their life and their challenges... And their budget. (laughs) Their budget. They look nothing like mine. Alas. I'm exposing myself here. If only. (laughs) Now... It's around 2015 to, I think, probably 2017 that we really see this shift start to take hold of consumers. We, at this point, we start taking our style advice and our beauty buys from people whose lives do look a bit more like ours. You know, the the people who are shooting their outfits of the day in their back garden, the people who look like girls or, you know, or boys that we would actually go to school with. Yeah, for sure. And brands start to catch on to with investment in micro-influencers growing steadily over time. Mm. At the same time as marketers start to recognize this thirst for authenticity and relatability among consumers. Yeah, for sure. I, th- although I haven't said that, and I, do th- I feel like I say this on every podcast, but I do think it bears repeating. From our research, This is still one of those areas where we noticed a real disconnect between consumers and brands. And this is, you know, five years after this point, we're still seeing that while 57% of marketers say that they're mostly likely going to prioritize mega influencers and above in the future, 37% of consumers say that they would be more likely to trust smaller accounts. And a further 32% literally just don't care about an influencer's audience size. So this could be a lot of budget marketers are potentially wasting if they're just assuming that mega influencers or celebrity accounts are the way to go. Yeah. And just to reassure anyone listening, we're absolutely not saying that celebrity influencers are a no-go. Bigger accounts absolutely have their place and their audience. What we're saying is don't make assumptions and definitely don't sleep on smaller creators because with their niche down, lower followers 
they might just be a gold mine for your brand. So I think the combination here could be the the golden ticket. Yeah, it's that pick and mix, I think, rather yeah. than only going whole hog on one or the other. And on that final note, I think that probably is all we've had time for today. I hope this has been an interesting look back through the archives of micro-influencers, learning how we got to where we are today. As ever, thank you so much for joining us for this week's Influencer Marketing Talks. We have been your hosts, Holly and Frida. If you do want to find out more about micro-influencers, like I said, do just head to our website, www.curemedia.com. Or alternatively, give us a follow. We're on all major social channels at Cure Media. Thank you so much again for listening, and we will see you back here next week for another episode of Influencer Marketing Talks.